There's only one place we can place our trust. That's the Lord alone. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to gather together today. I'm not sure if you've noticed outside, but there's now a cement kind of walkway area heading into the Ed Wing. Praise God for that. It's good. <laughs> Praising God for, for Paul Delancey and the team that's been working out there. And, and there's still stuff to do, and you can actually find out more. Um, if you want to get on that list, the email list, so you can know what's happening on the Saturdays coming up, so you can be a part of working with them uh, and kind of using wh- whatever you can do, um, skilled, unskilled, whatever your labor abilities are, just uh, let the church office know. You can email um, the church at info at claytonvalleychurch.com, or you can reach out to Paul directly. If you've got a directory, I'm sure he's in there, so you can reach out that way. But uh, there's, there's plenty to do. There's a lot happening, and we're, we're really grateful for how God's been leading us through this whole kind of revamping uh, the way our campus is laid out and what we're doing. Uh, as, as many of you know, we are now uh, in the book of Esther, and uh, I'm sorry, Ezra. See? Thank you. No, I just shifted it again. Today we're in Esther, so there. No, I'm not. But... Uh, as we're in the book of, of Ezra, I, I wanted to clear. So last week I was so excited. like, yeah, we're in Ezra. Let's go. And I really didn't set up like, why? Like, what are we doing? Where are we? You know, so just let me bit, rewind a little bit. Okay, here we are. We're back. By the way, for those who don't, don't know what that was, that was tape. Yeah. During, during generations going, like, what happened? He was just like, you know, he just went gerbil on us. What was that? All right, anyway, so, uh, so we are now... Uh, in Ezra, and uh, we shift things through the year for a reason. Um, we want to make sure that we're in different portions of Scripture, right? So part of, part of what I do when I'm setting up the preaching schedule is I want to make sure we have a balanced diet. And so we were in 1 Corinthians for a long time. We came out of that. We went into Luke, and we just got into Luke. And it's funny, last week some people were like, hey, we were into Luke. What are you doing, right? So yes, we'll come back to Luke. Don't worry. We're coming back. But during the summer, we typically will break from whatever we're in to go somewhere else. So, you know, 1 Corinthians, that's New Testament epistle. And then Luke, gospel narrative. And now Ezra, Old Testament narrative, right? So we're kind of, we want to make sure you have a balanced diet. We don't want a bunch of sheep that are flabby and unhealthy around here. Okay, that's what we're saying. No, but we, we want to make sure we're eating well. I'm supposed to feed you well. And so we want to make sure we're, we're you know, we want to preach the whole counsel of God. And we want to, you know, address different areas because, because that's important. So, so that's why we're here. But yes, we're going to go back into Luke uh, come fall. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll keep moving from there. Let me ask you a question. Are you a list person? Do you like lists? Like some people are like, I just, I love lists. I keep lists. I like my mirror. I've got post-it notes. I've got little boxes. I check them off. Other people are go, go like, you know, I've got a software program. You know, I've got Evernote or I've got something on my phone where I can just go list, check, 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 right? People love keeping lists. Uh, now, some don't. Some are like, if you give me a list, that's like putting a set of handcuffs on me, okay? Don't do it. You're, you're confining me. I, I'll know what I'm doing next when I get there, you know? But Lists are, for many people, a really helpful tool. And I recently came across a blog post that shared essentially 24 lists that everyone should make. 24 lists that all of us should use. And it included things like this. Movies you want to see. Recipes you want to try. Books you want to read. Places to see. Cities and countries to visit. Places to visit in your hometown. Here's one. Passwords. 
Uh-huh, yeah, I know. I know. I've mentioned this before, but you using password as your password? Just go change it today, okay? Like, let's just say, please hack me. Don't do it. All right, so passwords. Daily to-do lists, done lists, do-it-yourself projects, home projects, bucket lists, short-term goals, long-term goals, grocery lists. Me in the store without a grocery list? Just ask Janet, my wife. I'm a disaster. I, if you don't give me a list, I'm going to come home with sections of stuff you didn't want. And oh, that looks good, you know. That was on sale. You know, she, and Janet's like, I can't send you anywhere. What do I do? Anyway, so lists. Well, here's the thing. We find ourselves this morning in Ezra chapter 2. And this chapter is a list. It's a list of names. It's essentially 70 verses with approximately 100 names in it. And uh, it's so funny, this week, you know, the guys got together, there was a guy's night of praise and prayer, and we were going around in, in our little group, you know, what can I pray for you for regarding your work? And I'm like, so, I got to preach this week on uh, Ezra chapter 2, and it's uh, 70 verses containing about 100 names. And at least two guys in the group were like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they were trying to be all nice about it, but they were like, wow. There, there are some commentators that would just say, just don't preach this chapter. Just like Ezra 1, just go to 3. Like just, just skip, you know. Uh, but here's the thing. We, we know this. We know that all scripture is inspired by God. We know that it's profitable to instruct us and equip us. We know that God the Holy Spirit penned this section of Ezra for a reason. And so this week, I've been praying and asking God to bless our time together as we enjoy this section of Scripture. And, and I, since you're laughing at me already, I'm, I'm going to just go away. I'm done. No. Um, no, but I've been praying that we can enjoy, and we will. Because, because here's the thing. As I've gone through it, and I've been getting ready I've come to see that this part of the Bible is a significant and beautiful portion of Scripture. It teaches us a lot about God. It teaches us a lot about how God goes about restoring his people. And who knows, maybe as a result of, of this Sunday, maybe some of our parents, when they consider naming future children, they might actually choose to name one Zerubbabel <laughs> or Big Vi. You never know. It could happen. But go ahead, and if you would, and open to Ezra chapter 2. It's on page 345 in the Bible. It's provided there for you in the chair rack in front of you. And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read. Now, you'll recall from last week, Cyrus has just taken over Babylon, and he's made a decree, and King Cyrus has said, the people of Israel now can go back to the land to rebuild their temple. And this was prophesied centuries prior to Cyrus even being born. When the prophet Isaiah called out Cyrus by name and said, Cyrus is my prince and he's going to restore my people back to the land. And it's, you're like, that's just wild. Yeah, it is. But now here's uh, what happens historically as a result of that decree. Ezra chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the Israelites whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, 
Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehuim, and Bana. The number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benai, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adin, 454. The sons of Altar, of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Nedophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kariath Arim, Shephira, and Baroth, 743, the sons of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, the men of Jericho, 345, the sons of Sana, 3,630. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. We really are. We're going to pray. <laughs> Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would just help us to uh, learn from this section of your word about you. We thank you that you have much to tell us. And we, we praise you that, that certainly as lists are made, it reflects many things about those who make them. And it teaches us things about uh, what's important, what's significant. And in our case, here in Ezra, certainly it shows us things that are important to you as you restore your people. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit now who wrote this, that he would now take what he's written and illuminate our minds to see what he has for us in this, that we would walk out of here different than when we came in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've mentioned before, and as we talked about last week, the book of Ezra really is about God restoring his people. And so the question that I want to raise as we go through this passage is, what does a list of names teach us about God restoring his people? What, what does this show us? What does this cause us to see? And, and there are several things. And the first would be this. God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. This whole thing is a group of people and families that were exiled into Babylon. They were removed from their land. And so God was delivering his people out of captivity. That captivity came as a result of what? Of their sin. And so the captivity that came as a result of the sin is, is now overrun and, and, and reversed by the grace of God. This is God's grace at work. And we even see that reversal in the journey itself. Go ahead and take a look at this. I mean, here we have the people returning, the, the 
the, the very top line there, let me try to have a pointer here. I always forget. Oh, look at that. All right. So look, the first return under Zerubbabel is right here. So they're coming from Babylon back down into the land. There's Jerusalem. Uh, the second um, return is going to be by Ezra, and it's going to come, we're going to see that in chapter 7, but that, that is the same route. And then there's a third return under Nehemiah that's going to happen, and they take a slightly different route. But the point would be, look at this, this is the reverse of what? The exile, that. <laughs> so physically, it's a reversal. It's God turning it around. And each family and each name is important because the people who were taken away were a particular people from a particular place. They had a particular land. They had particular dwellings in particular towns in in the land that God gave his people. And so we have this community who was taken out, and now those same people, by their descendants, they are now returning to the very land they were taken from for the very role in the temple that they played before into the very places they lived as assigned by households. So this whole thing is a reversal. And so what does that mean for us? You know, first it would mean this. God is all about the business of restoring his people by reversing the seeming triumph of their sin. That's what God does in your life. And and what does that mean? That means if you're in Jesus, if you've received Christ, if you've come to him by faith, then where you are headed is way more significant than where you've been. Where you're going now, where he's taking you, because God is fulfilling his promises. God's carrying out what he has said to, to do, set out to do. Uh, we discussed this last week. Uh, what does Philippians 1 tell us? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's more committed to bringing you safely home to heaven. He's more committed to your spiritual growth in him than you are. And he's going to bring that to pass. God is the one who, who creates this whole pathway of grace. God is the one who restores his people. God's the one that rescues his people from captivity. And he's done that for you as well if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, if you've never turned to him, you can know that freedom. You can know what it means to have your sins forgiven and cast into the depths of the sea. You can know what it means to be reconciled or made right or to have a relationship with the God who made you through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Turn to him today. Trust him. Repent. Turn away from what you've been trusting in and turn to him, knowing that he'll save So God is the one that brings that exodus about. And and many have called this, and rightly so, a second exodus. It it really is one. It's got all the same ingredients that the first exodus had. The people were in exile. The people were enslaved. God provided a way out. And and as we'll see, uh, God actually provides the means to get out. He also provides materials. He provides gifts. Um, We can uh, go ahead, if you would, and flip over in chapter 2. Um, and, and, and look at what happens in, uh, in verses 68 and 69. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 silver minas, and 100 priestly garments. 
So there's giving that took place. And we also find that, uh, that those who did not return from Babylon also gave gifts to make this happen. So a lot of the things that uh, were a part of the original Exodus are a part of this account as well. So God is the one who reverses the triumph of sin and restores his people. Do you enjoy that today? Maybe you're battling sin. Maybe, maybe you feel today like, I'm just getting hammered down and defeated. The call to you is just what the call was when you first came to Jesus. Trust him. Turn to him. Rest in his finished work. Um, be sure to, to confess your sin. What does 1 John tell us? You know, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's, what's the temple worship even about? That very picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God who'll take away the sins of the world. And so he called them to this. He's calling us to this. So what does a, a list of names teach us about God's restoring his people? First, God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. Secondly, we learn something else. And that's this. God knows each of his people by name. Wow. Think about that. Each of these names has a story. You realize that? Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself looking at old pictures from time to time. And of course, now that we have, you know, it used to be there was this thing called a scrapbook. Those of you who are younger, it was a large book. You'd open it, you'd actually put pictures in it. And then there's something came along and killed the scrapbook. And that's called Facebook. Facebook essentially killed the scrapbook, okay? That's what it did. Uh, it used to be a big deal. Uh, but now you can go to Facebook and you get these memories that come up. And uh, now I'm not on Facebook, but Janet is. And recently she's like, hey, honey, look at these memories that are coming up. And I'm like, wow. Because you see the kids and they're all little. When we moved up here, our youngest, Grace, she was two. Yeah. Next year, she's going to be a senior in high school. What happened? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we, we, we kind of find ourselves looking at those pictures and going, wow. And, and you remember the stories, right? Those, those pictures, they bring back memories. They bring back memories of times you spent together. They bring back memories of events. Maybe they bring back memories of seasons of, you know, whatever it was for your family. Um, Maybe there's a friendship from, you know, a long time ago and all of a sudden it comes up and you're just, you're brought back to, wow, what was high school like? Well, I remember that or, or even farther back than that. Um, for some of us, you, you get a picture that shows up. Uh, we, we've got this little uh, Google device. I know it's probably not a good idea. Who knows what it's listening to? <laughs> they know everything apparently now. But this device, it's like a Google Hub kind of thing. It brings up pictures from your collection. So, and I mentioned this before, I would be going to the kitchen and then all of a sudden, you know, again, there's, uh, you know, our son Grant who's now married and moved out and, all, and there he is, this little six-year-old boy on his, you know, little big wheel and you're just like, <laughs> but, you know, these names and these lists in many ways for them at that time, that's their scrapbook. Does that make sense? Every one of these names has a story. Every one of these names is a person or a family or a group of people. And they all had trials and they all had joys and they all lived on planet Earth at this time and God had a specific purpose for them in this time to use them, 
to further his work. And, and that's something to keep in mind. And here's the thing. Though we don't know these people, God lists them out. And we do get that principle that God knows each of us by name. How does that make you feel? The king of the universe, the creator of all things, he knows you by name, down to the number of hairs on your heads, down to the molecular level, down to the smallest strands of, uh, you know, the double helix in the midst of your DNA. By the way, some of you know what that means. I really don't. But whatever, it's really tiny, it's small. God knows you. God cares. God, God, God is the one who, who uh, tenderly nurtures you as your heavenly father. You know, Father's Day is coming up next week, and for some of us, our earthly fathers were really a sort of pain more than anything else in our lives. And yet we find God is the one who knows his children. He is our Heavenly Father, and he knows you down to the deepest depths of your heart, even more than you know you, and he loves you. He knows more about your inner sin than you do, and he loves you in the face of that because of what Jesus did. How does that make you feel? I, th- I think we're more struck for some reason. And it might be because in our minds we kind of uh, turn to, well, he's God. Of course he knows everything about us. But, but, but I don't know. What if, what if there was like a famous person and, and they knew you? I, I, I think back to, uh, you know, the Queen of England, right? So, so Queen Elizabeth. There were a lot of stories about her when she passed away not long ago. But one thing that she did a really good job of, apparently, is, is stopping to know who people were. She took notice of people. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, a special thing. Um, there was uh, another brother who was, we were talking this week about this, and he served in, uh, in the military. And one of the high-ranking officials came to their base, and the guy, he was an admiral. And he walks into this guy's office, and he just goes, hey, call him by name, good to see you. And he was just like, whoa. He knows me? You know, maybe pick someone in your life that you greatly respect, or or I don't know, maybe it's a celebrity. We get that way with celebrities, right? We're just like, oh, no way. You know, for me, it would be like if if Larry Carlton, great guitar player, walked in the door, I'd be like, hi, Larry. (laughs) I wouldn't know what to say, you know? You're the best. What if he turned to me and go, hey, Chris, you know, I really appreciate you. I'd be going, What? You know, it would, it, would, it would really hit you. So why does that strike us? But the fact that God knows our name, we're like, oh yeah, of course he does. We're not thinking clearly. We're not grasping things the way we, should, way we need to. God knows your name. What does that mean? It means he has intent for you. It means collectively, together, he has a purpose for us. It means individually, you are precious to him. It means together as a church family, we are precious to him. God cares about the mundane. Jesus entered into the mundane. God is the author of the mundane. And yet, even in that, he uses the mundane, regular things of life to accomplish his supernatural purposes. That's just what he does. And and that's such an exciting thing. God cares for you. God, God answers your prayer. Now, sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. But it's so important that we see that. God knows each of us by name. And your life matters. 
Not because of your background, not because of your accomplishments, not because of your education or because of your financial success or or any of those things. Your life matters because you're his. So what does a list of names teach us about God's restoring his people? God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. God knows each of his people by name. And thirdly, we would see this. God values families. These are all family units. Isn't that interesting? They're not just individuals. It includes individuals, and there's some picked out, but these are families. And you think of that, you're going, what's the big deal about that? Well, in this case, in this context, there's a real important reason. Because the families listed here are the conduit of God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So, back in the book of Genesis, God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God sets apart for himself a people, the people of Israel. And now it's through this lineage of Abraham that we are going to have the Messiah born. Centuries later. But here, in this point in time, God is using families to fulfill his promise to Abraham. But we also see throughout the scriptures that families are actually designed by God to be the avenue by which the faith is passed on from one generation to another. That's always been the case. So in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, the picture is, you know, there's a dad and he's walking down the road and his child's walking with him and the child asks, hey, dad, why is it that we, you know, celebrate this thing called Passover? Like, what's the deal? And so the idea is, well, while you're walking, by the way, you're to instruct your sons and daughters in, in, in the things of God. You're to talk with them about those things. And so here we also would see that, uh, you know, these names that are listed, uh, they, they would imply and show that we, in fact, as God's people, are together corporately God's family. That's us. Because of what Jesus did, we are connected We're brothers and sisters. And that means that the value that he places on someone is the value that we should place on people. And and the way we interact with one another ought to reflect the fact that we're related. We're in God's family. And so I think think a lot of times we we run around in life and we think that somehow our biological family... Is, is somehow more real. And maybe the, you know, this family of God idea, it's a metaphor. You know, the family of God, it's, it's an analogy. But in actuality, because of what Jesus did, our family together as Christians, it's actually more real than our biological connections. It's more real because Jesus is the one who lived, died, and rose again. And, and he brings us together into God's family. And, and then that leads us to ask the question, do we prioritize God's family? Is that something that we want to invest in? Is that something that we connect with? Are, are we seeing one another as brothers and sisters? And are we treating them that way as brothers and sisters? And by the way, some of you are thinking, well, the way I treated my little brother, you don't want me doing that here. You know? Okay, then don't use that analogy. But you get the idea. We're to love one another. You know, 1 Corinthians, when we were in that book, what, what, what do we find there? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
Love, love rejoices in all things, believes all things, endures all things. You realize how many of those terms describing love describe some form of conflict? <laughs> like it's going to happen. There's going to be ways that people rub you wrong. And the question is, do we deal with that in a way that reflects the fact that we, in fact, are a family? Are we willing to work through hard things? Are we willing to make the main things the main thing? Will we deal with conflict biblically? Will we allow for matters of conscience as people see different things in different ways at different times? We need to. Because when we live like that together, that is what makes the gospel visible to the dying world around us. That is salt and light. But let's, for the sake of time, let's keep moving. What, what does the list of names teach us about God restoring his people? God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. God knows each of his people by name. God values families. But this list also shows us something else. It shows us that God values worship. All of these people are being brought back into Jerusalem to rebuild the what? The temple. What was the temple? That was the worship center for the people of God. So, so they're being brought back for that reason. And each of these lists, we find that there's various roles to be carried out. So look at verse 36. The priests are, are, are listed in verses 36 and following. And then look at verse 40. The Levites are listed. And then we find within the category of Levites, verse 41. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128 singers. Andrew, what would that be like? 128 singers just standing up here. That'd be great. We have better than that. We got over 200 singers in this room. Exactly. We've got the sons of the gatekeepers. We've got, verse 43, the temple servants. And, uh, and then we have, verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. And then they give a total in verse 58. The temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. So all these different roles are for the purpose of worship in the temple. And they all had various purposes. Uh, the priests were those that would actually go into the Holy of Holies. They would labor there before God. Now in the original temple, the temple of Solomon, there was the Ark of the Covenant. As of right now, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. From Ezra on, we're not sure. We don't know. And I know some of you are saying, Chris, it's in a warehouse. Okay, yeah. No. That was a movie. We don't know that. All right, no. But where it is, we don't know. But their purpose in this revised temple, and, and this temple is not going to be as glorious as Solomon's. It's going to be actually uh, less Spectacular, And there's going to be a grieving over that. So there's still consequences for sin that the people will grieve over. But the priests would still have the same duties of going before God on behalf of the people. They would go before God. They would intercede before God. They would confess the people's sins. They would pray on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So there is still that role to be carried out. Uh, the Levites would be those, again, with, with singers and, and, and also instrumentalists sometimes and and we'd find um, 
gatekeepers as well as a kind of a subdivision of the Levites. They were just attendants around the temple. So there were other functions that they would have. But all of this was centered on the worship of God. And think about that. What, what does God go through throughout the Old Testament to allow his people to come before him in worship? It's a big deal. I mean, true worship really is the expression of a surrendered life to God. That's literally what, what even the Hebrew terms, when we break them down, they really mean to bow before. A surrendered life to God. That's worship. And then, and then by the time we come to looking at us as New Testament believers, as we you know, look back on this, go ahead and turn to Romans 12, if you would. Open to Romans 12. We get this powerful description of worship in Romans chapter 12. Paul has, uh, throughout the book of Romans, been describing the gospel. And he's been talking about how the fact is all of us are sinners. There's not one who does good, not even one. He begins the book of Romans by saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So he declares right at the outset, the problem is not information. People know there's a God. Instead, what they have to do, they need to suppress that truth. They need to push it down. They don't want there to be a God because people then and now are addicted to their moral escapism. They want to live life their own way. They want to pretend there isn't a God so they can do what they want to do. And so Paul lays out and says, for those who are, are, are turned away from God, who are living a pagan life, who will not acknowledge God, you're in big trouble. That's essentially what Romans 1 says. Then Romans 2 is this. Oh, and by the way, then for those of you who are religious, you're in just as much trouble as those in Romans chapter 1. So if you're religious, that's not going to help you. Because whatever religious standard you set up, you fail. You don't carry it out. So by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Religious people, they fall short. Irreligious people, they fall short. So what do we do? Well, now there is from God a righteousness that is given to you and to all who will trust him. And that righteousness is received by faith. It's not your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness outside of you that's given to you by faith. That's radical. And then from Romans 3, all the way up through 11, Paul impacts the implications of that very thing. But by the time he gets then to the end of chapter 11, he has this eruption of praise. He's been talking doctrine, doctrine. He's been praising God through this, but now he just can't hold it in and he cries out the depths of the wisdom, of the glory of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. And verse 36 of chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And you're like, wow, I don't know. If I was him, I'd like end the book of Romans right there. Like, boom, that was it. You know, climax, done. Psh, close in prayer. But does he do that? No. No, look at the next word in verse 12. First thing, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? That's right. That's the question you've got to ask when you see a therefore. What's therefore pointing to? Uh, chapters 1 through 11. In light of everything I've said, in light of all of it, therefore, I urge you, 
Brethren, by the mercies of God. So because of God's mercies that I've described throughout all of this, I urge you to do what? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He, he, he's using language that the first time people heard it, they'd be going, huh? What are you talking about? Because look what he says. Present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. Huh. Well, every sacrifice I've ever seen, if I'm living at the time, they all have one thing in common. They're dead. They're all dead. You want a living sacrifice? Yeah. How does that work? Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, I want to be transformed. I want to be like the world around me. How does that work? How do I do that? He goes on. By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So these are the categories that Paul brings worship into. It's not just something you do on a Sunday morning. When you gather in this room, as we gather together, are are we worshiping God? Yes, Corporate worship, it's a beautiful thing. It's a commanded thing. We find other passages in Scripture that describe it and, and, and why we're doing it. And, and God takes pleasure in it. We are, are, are filled uh, with Him. We drink deeply of Him. We get to know Him more. We draw near to Him. We encourage one another. There's all kinds of things that happen. But here we find the spiritual service of worship is beyond this. It's a life of worship, a life of full surrender to the Lord. So God values worship. He's, he's outlining what it looks like and what it's for. He's outlining who he is. He's describing who he is with the temple. He's calling his people to that. But certainly they were called to worship God throughout their days. You know, we're told even as Jesus describes those commandments from the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that just when you're gathered together in corporate worship? No, it's love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus will later take that commandment and actually up the ante. and He'll say, don't just love your neighbor as yourself. No, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That's totally different realm, different league. That only happens by the indwelling spirit. But God has freed you to worship him. Just like them, they were freed out of captivity to come in and worship him, to enter the land and to rebuild that. And so even more so, as those who have experienced freedom in Christ, we're to live out our daily lives as a spiritual service of worship. And that means, again, in the mundane, on the road, in the marketplace, at the school gate, in the neighborhood, we are worshipers. Lovers of God. Lovers of one another. So the question is, do you value worship? And do you see yourself as a worshiper? The fact is, everybody worships something. 
Even if you're here today and you've not come to Christ at this point, do you realize you are worshiping something? There's something that you're seeking after to to give you life. There's something you're after or multiple things you're after to attempt to find that, that fullness or that satisfaction or that wholeness or whatever it is you're after. But you're never gonna find it until you turn to Jesus. The experience of freedom that those who have come to Christ that we all share in is a freedom to worship him. We, we don't have to labor to maintain our justified status before God. Do you realize that? God did that. It's done. You stand before God with no condemnation in Christ. You don't have to labor to maintain that. You're now free to love God and love others. And that's worship. So what does a list of names teach us about God restoring his people? One, God restores by reversing the triumph of sin. Two, God knows each of his people by name. Three, God values families. Four, God values worship. And we also see God calls his people to holiness. We saw that earlier when we were going through Romans a little bit, but God calls his people to a a place of separation. And we find this in Ezra 2 in a very interesting place. Look at verse 59 of Ezra 2. There's a group of people that are having a hard time finding their paperwork, I guess you'd say. Here's what it says. Now, there are those who came up from Tel Maha, from Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, Emir, but they are not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priests, the son of Habiah, the sons of Hazak, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gideonite? I'm sorry, the Gileadite. And he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said of them, they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. Now, you, you look at that, you're going, what on earth is going on? Well, here's the thing. So people are coming from the land, and they're saying, yes, I'm of this household. I'm of this household. I'm of this household. Okay, well, then that's your land, and this is your duty in the temple. Okay, that's your household. This is your land, your duty. And then someone comes up and goes, uh, I can't find my birth certificate. I don't know. I, I think I'm a priest, but I'm not sure. And the response was, you know what? There is... No room for uncertainty about whether you belong to God or not. There's no sitting in the middle. There's no fence. We're not going to have you involved in priestly activities until we know. Now, you'll notice they didn't say to him, get out of here. That's not what they said. They said, you can come. You're here. But you're not going to serve as a priest. You're not going to partake of the holy things until we know. And then the method they want to use would be until the priest stands up with the Urim and and that, that was a part of the breastplate. So if you recall from Exodus, there's a breastplate and there's a portion of that where, where uh, we don't know a lot about it. All we know is it was something that was sort of cast in some way and it was determinative of God's will. God was speaking through the priest at that time to show them what to do. And so in this case, we don't even have priests functioning right now. So essentially it's you can wait over here 
When we have priests, we'll deal with this, is the idea. But you're not going to serve as one until we know. And so I think, I think for us as believers, we need to think about that and go, you know what? The reality is this. We're all priests, we're told. First Peter tells us that. Right? You are a royal priesthood of God's own possession, Peter writes. And he's talking to everyone in Jesus. And he says, you are to be holy as I am holy. So this idea of holiness is the idea of not only following God, obeying God, living for God, but it's also this idea of being separate unto God. And in this case, with these particular people, because they did not have the paperwork background to know, they weren't sure who they were of. And so they said, wait. And I think for us, we need to consider for ourselves, am I living out my life as one set apart for God? Does that mean you're not going to battle sin? No. If anything, it means you're going to battle sin a lot. It means you're going to trust in the one who lived the perfect life and died the death you deserve. You're going to trust in him for your righteousness. And it also means by his grace, you are going to live a life set apart more and more, growing in the love and knowledge of him, determined to live to honor him and not willing to just sort of Say, well, you know, it's sin, I guess. I'll just kind of cave. Romans 6 describes that really well. I encourage you to look at that through this week where, where Paul answers that question. Some people have said, well, gee, you know, Paul, if, if we're saved by grace then, uh, from our sins, then maybe if there's more sin in my life, then there's more grace. Right? And Paul does the, no. You know, may it never be, he says. I mean, I, I'm... You know, that, that comic book where Batman's slapping Robin, you know? May it never be. Psh, you know, that's what it is. It's no. Don't even think like that. And then he goes on to say why. Because how can the one who has died to sin still live in it? He's not saying in Romans 6, you should die to sin. He's saying you are dead to sin. He's not saying in Romans 6, you should put to death sin. Other passages tell us that, and we should. He's saying you already are dead to sin because of what Jesus did. So live that way. And so we are called to clear holy separation unto him. And we can only live that way empowered by his spirit. This is not a self-improvement thing. It's not you getting on the hamster wheel and running harder. No, it's living in union with Christ more and more and understanding what that means more and more and considering yourself, as Paul says. So take your mind and consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Why should you consider yourself that way? Because you, in fact, are dead to sin and alive to God because you are connected with Jesus. In conclusion, the last thing we would see of the way that God works through a list of names to teach us about the way he restores his people is that God works through seemingly irrelevant details for his purposes. Look at all the details in here that are going, what is the big deal? I mean, look at verse 66. So we had male and female servants who numbered 7,337. That, that's important. 200 singing men and women. Okay, that's important. But then you get to verse 66. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. Their donkeys were 6,720. And you're going, really? Like that needs to be preserved? The number of animals that are there? Well, it does tell us a few things. First of all, horses were a little bit more expensive a lot of it more expensive in that culture at that time. So you had different 
groupings of people with different amounts of wealth. Some could, you know, I guess drive the Maserati, all right? They had, they had the means to, everyone else was in a Toyota Camry, right? And it's sort of like, there you go. You got the, the donkeys versus the, right? It's sort of this, uh, different groupings of people. And uh, it looks irrelevant to us, but here's the thing. What's irrelevant to us is a part of his intricate plan and what he's accomplishing. He's bringing together people of different wealth, of different backgrounds, of different um, ways of, of exercising their gifts, and he's bringing them all into this place for the worship of him. And that's what he's doing with us too. And all of these details, every one of them, from the priests to the Levites to the singers to the gatekeepers to the temple servants to the different cities to the different regions that they would go back and repopulate to the construction and then the reconstruction of the temple. All of it prepares and preserves for the coming of Christ. We are God's new covenant people. And so as they looked ahead to the Messiah, we look back to Messiah. Um, we look back on his death, burial, and resurrection. And what do we find? The Bible, in the New Testament scriptures especially, describe his people as collectively, we are the temple. We are the temple, the church of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 3. So corporately, we are God's temple. Individually, did you know your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit? That's 1 Corinthians 6. We find in the book of Ephesians that, that we're described in many ways. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We together corporately are the building of Christ. And so our essential identity, when we ask this question, who am I? We find out it's not about what we do. It's not about our, our pedigree, our background, our education, or anything else about us, our, our supposed class. It's not about our, our sexuality or any of those things. Our identity rests in our union with Christ. And so God shows us through this list that we've got to remember who we are. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see these things clearly. Thank you that in your word, even a list of names has so much to show us about you and your work in restoring your people. So we ask that you would cause us to be able to take these things to heart and that we would live in a way as your people, restored by you, for you, to glorify you, and that others would also be restored in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.